welcome to the Friendship News Hour book review of Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. This is the review of Chapter 7, Memory Overload, and Chapter 8, There Is No Justice in History. My name is Frank Worth. I'm joined, as always, by Alex Kenzie. Hey, hello, Frank. What would you think of these guys? Hello. Um, a little slow moving, Chapter 7, and uh, I think it picked up a little bit in Chapter 8. And, For sure. Uh, yeah, man. I got excited. It, it really starts getting into the stuff, the good stuff, you know, the controversial, concrete evidence. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened and here's why it was, was messed up and here's what led to it. And uh, so we've we've all but gone away from theorizing and, and now we're solidly into human history and the the real grittiness of it all. Yeah. So before yeah. we get started on this, let's give a quick recap of uh, what we talked about previously. We're still on part two, the agricultural revolution. These last two chapters, seven and eight, will wrap up the agricultural revolution. Um, we talked previously about how the agricultural revolution was history's biggest fraud and how the crops and animals that we domesticated uh, really ended up domesticating us and uh their survival and and their being able to thrive was based on our uh, necessity for them. So um, it talked about how um, there had been no new domesticated plants in the past, animals or plants in the past 2,000 years. Um, It led to the organization of hierarchies based on who's going to eat the food and who's going to grow the food. Um, abundance of food became luxury and uh, spawned new responsibilities and that kind of stacked on each other until we became the uh, the uh, societies that we are today. Uh, chapter 6 was talking about how we're always building pyramids and how we're using hierarchies to structure societies to where the the many at the bottom build a pyramid that house the few at the top. Um, and then it got into imagined orders, uh, talking about the way that we structure ourselves is more or less figment of our imagination based upon the common goal of cooperation towards a quote unquote better future. And, um, that's sort of where chapter six led off. And that's, it's a good segue. It's a good lead into chapter seven. Mm. Chapter seven titled memory overload. And this chapter starts to describe the transition from our collective memories, holding our truths to systems, being able to record information that previously couldn't have been recorded and how that advancement of human technology spread and the consequences of it. So they start the chapter off by saying how basketball players can, like you, for example, could go to Spain and you could play a pickup game of basketball, no problem, even though you don't speak Spanish, you never met any of the people on the court. And the reason for that is because there's universal rules to basketball. And they say that the same, th- same thing applies to empires and to governments. 
And uh, the only exception to that rule is that the rules of the game of a government or an empire or a kingdom are far more complex than that of the game of basketball. And the only way that we were able to advance from foraging to large kingdoms, governments, societies that have a hierarchical structure was through the recording and storing of data, specifically data, not words or thoughts or poems or anything like that. Specifically data. Uh, I don't know if you remember, they talked about the some ancient Sumerians and their, how they were the first written yes. his, like the first written texts of history that we know of was from ancient Sumeria. Yes. Yep. Yep. And they had to record all kinds of things, you know, taxes, transactions, merchant vessels, calendars. Um, but I think the very first thing that we have written, uh, as far as that goes was it, like you said, from ancient Samaria and it, uh, it read 29,086 measures of barley, 37 months, Koshim, which they have translated to, you know, over 37 months, this is how many, how much barley we had recorded by Koshim. Yeah. So it was an econo economic text. Yes, exactly. It wasn't very sexy. Mm -mm. And as far as we know that the Sumerians had no intention of recording spoken word, mm -hmm. right? They, they wanted to record the things that were too complex for our brains to hold more or less. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so it, it, you know, it talks about, again, the brain not being the greatest place to store massive amounts of information. Um, I guess, I don't know how they were able to decipher this, but it made the point that the information in a human brain, even if it's passed down meticulously, will be all but removed by two generations past yep. when it died. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it talks about like the ever-changing ways of the world and, you know, no two things really stay exactly constant through two generations. So obviously our thought process, excuse me, is way different from our grandparents' thought process, right? I'm, I, I'm lucky to have my grandma around right now. She was born in 1925, yeah. right? That's a long time ago. And there's seen, no way that we think the same. And it's evident, yeah. even in modern day, we both watch TV. She uses the internet to bank, which is wild, 96 <laughs> years old. You know, but our thought process and the way that we go about our day-to-day -day doesn't exist in the same universe. No way, man. And she's seen a Great Depression, two world wars. I mean, just think how those things alone changed the world, let alone technology exploding. You know, so yeah, yeah I mean, there's... And she hasn't, she doesn't drink alcohol. Oh, oh, really? I haven't been sober in like two weeks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm partly to blame so, for that a little bit. So it's just, it's just, yeah. So, so it makes sense that the brain isn't, isn't capable of withstanding the, the test of history. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Whatever, whatever it was that we know about our... Uh, our history is 
all written more or less, right? I mean, that's sort of the kind of the theme of this book is it's all kind of theory based on what we know by today until we get to what, text. what we know. And we know because of, yeah. exactly because of text. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first text that we know of, we mentioned the ancient Sumerians and that came, that came between 300, three, excuse me, 3,500 BC to 3000 BC. That's when we estimate that those texts were written. Uh, and it was a partial script. They made the point it was a partial script. And I think that's important. We'll touch on that a little later. Why, why partial scripts important, but, um, but it didn't have the capability, like you said, of copying down spoken word. It was just to communicate more or less facts. Um, and so then it transitions into, um, our mindset today and how it is, how it had stemmed from this ancient Sumerian partial script. It gives the example of modern day workers in America, like clerks and accountants, and they don't think like humans. They think like filing cabinets and it's not more, it's not any it's not really bad. It's not good, but it's necessary. And it helps us in our day to day to get through what we need to get through. Right. Like in the beginning of this chapter, they talk about lawyers and how you might've been the best lawyer of, we'll just say the best, uh, uh, medical law lawyer in Massachusetts. Right. And you might know how to do that very well, but you're not going to be able to retain every single medical malpractice suit that has come across the state of Massachusetts in the past 100 years. Your brain is not capable of doing that. That's why we write things down. And and that's how we get to the point where our brains sort of act like filing cabinets, the way that we structure our information, our data, and the way that we go about learning and progressing and being members of, of contributing members of society made the point that, that free association and holistic thought have given way to compartmentalization and bureaucracy. I think that's a hundred percent true. You know, we were able to compartmentalize without any thought. So many things in our lives. I mean, just for example, right now, if I'm sitting here looking at my station, I have a mixing device, a microphone, a laptop, and behind that I have a monitor. And I don't think about those items at all. Mm-hmm. Although there's different pieces of equipment in, with inside these machines that I couldn't even fathom how they work. I couldn't tell you the slightest reason why this thing is able to record my voice distort it in a way that sounds good to my ear and then take it to my laptop, which then records what this mixer has mixed from what it gathered from my microphone, put that into a file. And then I'm able to put that somewhere where everybody can hear. I mean, we take for granted so much of that process because we're able to compartmentalize our thoughts and use a partial script like um, the numeric code. Is that what it's called? The numeric code? What we use for coding? Binary. Ones and zeros. And that's, that's, that's what, what all, all that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a bunch of ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. 
And even if you're able to understand those ones and zeros and write the code that makes this stuff happen, it's based off of tens of millions of hours of work of people before you and I mm-hmm. that has been able to be written down, compartmentalized, stored, and then retrieved and used resourcefully when it is needed. Sure. He mentioned one thing that I just thought was funny that when, uh, if, if like a man, if two men were in a dispute about like land and guy A is claiming that he bought property from guy B, um, before there'd be no way to really like, who was right. It's like one guy's word versus another's. And like this system brought a way to, you know, settle that dispute because you'd have some kind of contract, some kind of agreement written, something that would show that record. But he also said, like, think about them trying to find, if he sold this to him 30 years ago, or this transaction happened 30 years ago, trying to go and locate that clay tablet from 30 years prior. Like, think about these libraries, these massive, like, storage facilities, houses, whatever, that they had to have back then, and how (laughs) tedious of a job that would have been. And not to mention the the minuscule amount of people that actually knew how to read and write these words. Yeah. And um, I was just thinking about when I, when I was reading this, how, how much discipline and dignity and honor that these people must have had to possessed to understand. I mean, cause they had to understand the gravity and the power that they had. Their, their situation came with so much power. If you were a scribe for a King, right? Mm-hmm. That King relied on you to read and write. Right. So if you, if you wanted to, you could manipulate the whole thing. Mm, Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's crazy to me how much power reading and writing it's that it still has. I mean, it's, it's the, the foundation of, of what we do, but even back then, just the, the small amount of people that knew how to do it. Yeah. Where, you know, they had, they had all the power in the world. And yeah, he even says like so many people were probably more, way more focused on farming and, and all these, all these different trades and like the ways of life that like everyone needed to survive at that time. There was a select few people doing this, but these people were almost like the most important, um, people of, 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 of that species of, of that group of people, because that like, that's how we have gotten to our writing system today and how we know factual information about past societies and cultures. Yeah. And they, they made the point in the book earlier about, you know, the people doing what they did back in 3000 BC in ancient Samaria weren't doing so for the benefit of you and I 5,000 years later, right? They were doing so so that they could maintain and progress as a people. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just wild. Nobody thought the consequences of what they did then would be what we have now, but it, but it is, and it was, um, and in, in a way, it's like almost the most natural thing in, a, in the most unnatural way, you know, it, it sort of ends the, it, it sort of ends the chapter talking about how we're using this binary code now, this partial script, um, and mathematics, which is also another partial script to generate intelligence capable of thinking on its own in the name of helping us as a society. And it doesn't say like 
definitively this is what's going to happen, but it uses science fiction books and uh, movies mm. as a way to say that the only way that we have portrayed that scenario in the future is the destruction of all mankind as we know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting Scary. way to, to end the chapter. But yeah. he basically said, you know, we don't know what this means or where this binary code is going to go. But the only way that we've been able to dramatize it is through terror and destruction. Isn't that weird? There's no like good robot movie. There's no happy robot movie. It's all sadness and despair. That's true. Yeah. Even Wally is like in a post-apocalyptic yeah. world and iRobot and... That's true. Yeah. I like, can't like, think of one. I'm like trying to think a, a future where we all flourish and everything is clean and beautiful and blue and clear and bright and sunny and robots Would you watch are doing that movie though? for us. And Would you watch that movie though? You want to see some shit blow up. You want to see Will Smith fighting him with his dog on the street. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't want to watch like a yeah. perfect movie. Yeah, like, I, think there's a there's way, I think there's a way to make a really good movie. Yeah that uses that that atmosphere as a backdrop, not necessarily yeah. as the focal point of the movie, you know? Like the For Jetsons. Sure. For sure. I guess the Jetsons would be a good example. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. Uh, we probably also should just, like, touch, like, uh, with these half scripts, but uh, they also, he, he kind of briefly talks on the full scripts, too, like hieroglyphics, um, it, and just, like, things that, you know, would be used more for writing and more for history telling, more so than record keeping. Um, and that that's kind of where more modern languages evolve from you know over time they evolve from partial scripts you mean uh well you have the full scripts too which should be you know poetry books prophecies that's like your ability to write out a sentence um and and like so you have these half scripts which are are still very much ingrained into our life with binary with with calendars um and, and things like that mathematics but you you have full scripts which are evolved around the same time uh, like with cuneiform hieroglyphics, but mm. these are what became the ability to uh, record history, but not through the eyes of numbers and like statistical data necessarily, but like uh, with with clear detail. You know, so like this is what happened. These were the rulers. These were you know this is how long they ruled for. These were the wars they fought. You could give way more detail into the lives of people, and it took longer for those to develop, but they did start to develop shortly thereafter these half script these partial scripts sure and the point that i extract from that that is the most interesting is that i think to today we don't we take for granted the fact that um you know math and uh and english and 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 prose and all that are not are, are separate they didn't come from the same thing Mm. You know what I mean? Like we all kind of, we'll see a calendar and we'll read December and we'll see the numbers and we won't think twice about how those are two different phenomenon that kind of melded into each other. True. Yeah. And, and that, yeah. And, and I loved when they said that, that there at to the best of our knowledge, there's no evidence that they decided to write down spoken word. Mm hmm myths and stories and legends that they all probably carried in their brain. Um, but I guess also if you're still in a, what I would imagine, I don't know if ancient Samaria was still a tribe. Um, but I, I guess when you're at or around that 150 person mark of 
intimate relationships that you can keep, there probably was no need to write down the things that were in people's head because more or less the group acted as one and they all had their interpersonal relationships and they could keep those going without the, without the necessity to jot down a story that they heard. Sure. Yeah. So, and, and, and then it kind of closes right before the chapter ends. And I, I never knew it was developed this late, but like our numerals, like the Arabic numerals weren't even mm-hmm. developed until the ninth century AD. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Like I, I would have think I would have thought when learning this, that like maybe post Sumerian or like shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. uh, is, is kind of when that was introduced maybe by like the Egyptians, but that none of none of what we actually use for math, even though it's based off like a base ten system, uh, which the Sumerians used, you know, thirty five hundred BC, um, but the num the numerals that we all know that zero to nine uh, did not come until the ninth century. Well, yeah, because then you have to imagine that before then, the necessity for organizing something in a number existed. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. The the uh, the you needed to. If, if you're trading or you have any sort of economic relations with anybody else, you need that sort of understanding of, I have two fish, you have one bag of rice. Right. <laughs> and how do right. you, how do you say that without saying numbers? Yeah. It's, right. I mean, it's such a foreign concept for us. You can't even fathom it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, it does end the chapter that way, kind of saying that math is, is the universal, um, the universal, what do they it's name like it? First partial universal language. Script. Yeah. Yeah. Universal partial script. Cause it doesn't, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have any ability for us to express ideas, but by using a n- binary code, another partial script, we're trying to allow for this partial script to write what this full script of like English or Arabic or whatever, whatever written language can do has the power to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, 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 it did end pretty cool that way. Um, and then it, there was no real segue into this next chapter because this next chapter really starts to get uh, into the, more agitating aspects of our history. Chapter eight's called, There Is No Justice in History. And it begins by talking about how our societies, as long as we've been recording them, have not been organized in any neutral or fair fashion. Um, and that they were imagined orders that placed human in imagined groups and they were organized in a hierarchy. So it talks about Hammurabi having the three class of people and those people were segmented into those three groups and they had their hierarchy and you knew the hierarchy because if you uh, committed a crime against this one group and committed the same crime against the other group, the penalty for one group was less than the other. And so it talks about how these hierarchies really don't have... um, or by nature are not just. And even when you look at a society that many people believe to be the most just to have ever existed in America, and you look at the founding document 
the Constitution, it makes the case that while Hammurabi decided to make these class of people, the Constitution said all men are equal, but the people who wrote those words and implemented these ideas to form a nation held beliefs that didn't jive with that message. And it uses women as an example. It uses uh, African-American slaves as an example. Um, And it basically was like, yeah, this document did say all men are created equal, but up until like maybe a hundred years ago, the, the idea of a woman being able to vote was laughable, wouldn't even be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea, or, you know, the well-documented history of abuses against African-American folk, particularly in the South, even after slavery was no longer a thing, shows that the people who created this country, although they were reaching for an ideal that was probably the highest that they could think of, they didn't practice it in real life. And or just thought of them not as people. He he kind of says that too. He did like say just, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. He he's he said all men created equal, but you know, certainly not women or or black <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. Um which is maybe why it says all men are created equal and not all people. Like maybe maybe they knew like, well, we can't really we don't want to contradict ourselves that hard because <laughs> Right. Right. Or um it uses the example of like racists um who if you were to talk to them actually i'm getting i'm I'm sorry i'm getting a bit ahead of myself here um but it made the point that every every imagined hierarchy that we know of which is all recorded history disavows fictional origins and claims to be natural um Mm -hmm. So the people who practiced slavery had justifications for slavery. Even Aristotle, the great thinker Aristotle had said, quote, slaves had a slavish nature and that free, free people had a free nature. Right. And this, this guy is a, is a, you know, a, a, one of the most famous philosophers to ever exist. Um, if you were to ask a white supremacist about, why they hold beliefs that they do. They're going to tell you some divine reason why white people have a upper hand or are avowed a greater existence just because they're white and they'll try to use scientific reasoning behind that. If you were to ask a capitalist um, why they believe in capitalism as the one great economic infrastructure, they're going to tell you that merit is the most common denominator and that there's objective differences um, between those who have been blessed with wealth and those who haven't, and that is merit and merit rewards the strongest and it punishes those who don't pull their own weight. Right. So the point is that everybody who has practiced these 
imagined hierarchies and these imagined orders and who have decided that one group of people are not going to get the same treatment as another group of people have done so in a way that they have bona fide reasons in their head as to why it is that these things exist and it's almost scientific for them. Yeah. He, he, he even says that the way that, that they've done this through the years and you've seen it in a lot of different cases, but like that, that early paternal fraternity, whatever you want to call it of, of like leaders that ingrain this into us, like you almost convince the mass of people that these other these other categories of people are like a source of pollution. So like, if you look at women, uh, gays, blacks, if you look at Hitler and like what he did with the Jews, like you, you convince the people through one way or another that like this, like in, if I one, one instance, sex, like men, we're stronger. We're, we're, we're able to do more things we provide. So we're the dominant sex. You look at, at, at Aryans and, and like we're, we're the dominant species. We need to do this to thrive. And, and Jews are disgusting. Like you, you change the way people think about these things so that you then establish like a pecking order almost. Yeah. And the word that the author used was natural. I think that's important because if I were to believe that Mexicans are the best, uh, or the best laborers the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. Right. And I want to bring them to America because they're the best laborers ever. And, uh, I'm not going to pay them as much as an American because, well, they're the best laborers in the world and they didn't get that way because, um, they're any different from any of us. They got that way because that's their natural state. And so by proxy, they enjoy labor and, uh, they'd rather do it because they like it and pay is not, uh, as much of a big deal to them as anybody else. Um, that thought process, if I were to believe it, is using channels of the natural progression of things uninterrupted by one manipulation or another. So if I believe that this thing is naturally progressed to the way it is, if I naturally believe that slaves have a slavish nature and free people have a free nature, or if I'm a a slave owner in the South, I believe that black people are more inclined to be slaves because if they weren't, why wouldn't they be Mm. right? I believe these things to be natural. Therefore that is the way that it should be. And I'm justified in my belief in that because if it wasn't that way, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. So as terrible of an idea as it is to you and I using, using the lens of, of hindsight, um, you can certainly see why somebody would be so devoted to such a shit idea. Sure. And more than that, the power of that devotion towards human behavior and mass. It used the the Indian caste system as an example. Um, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with the Indian caste system at all? Not very much so. I, I just, he did mention that it's like, they're still influenced by that. Like it's still, yeah. uh, even though like the, it's officially gone, like they're, it is still ingrained into their culture and their everyday lives, even, you know, 2021 <laughs> right, AD. Right. Um, 
it's 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 an it's an Indian. I'm talking about Indian the, the country um, way of putting people in different classes. And like you, I don't know much about it. I know that it historically is looked upon as one of the more egregious ways that we've decided to organize humanity. Um, and I think it talked about some like crazy, like 300 different casts that you were placed in. And it was more or less, um, like divine reasoning or astrology that placed you in this class. Um, and so, and and that's where you're at, right? When you were born, that's, you're determined by that. Um, it also used, China, as an example, um, there were like lucky days that you could be born and unlucky days you could be born. And that was predetermined the day you were born and you weren't given any opportunity to change that through your actions as a human being. (laughs) Um, and it goes all the way up to the modern China, Chinese one kid rule. And it even described how people would kill their firstborn if it was a girl girls were looked down upon. Um, let me make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself here. Yeah. But this is a, a little bit, a little bit, uh, further down in the chapter as they're, as they're talking about more or less women. Um, so I, I am getting a bit ahead of myself, but, um, after the caste system, it talks about purity in America, justifying the slave trade in America for three reasons. One, Africa was closer than, say, Thailand or the Philippines. And it already had a well-developed slave trade. So instead of creating a market, they went to where a market existed. Um, American plantations had a lot of malaria and yellow fever. And Africans had a um, immunity towards these diseases. Yeah. So it made sense for them to go geographically to the location that Southern plantations were in because they were immune to those three, to the, to those diseases. And those, those three reasons are why Americans in the South back 200 years ago, um, or so decided that, um, they were going to use Africans as slaves and there was no second thought about it. There was nothing that it was, like I said before, it was a natural thing to them. He, he made a point when he was talking about that that I thought was, was kind of crazy. And he said that segregation in the mid-20th century was worse than in the late 18th century, like when slavery was legal and, and, or like right afterwards. And, and I thought that, like, that was pretty wild to think about. Um, but like then I, then I, I kind of like broke it down and I'm thinking like, okay, so in, in 1865, you have the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery soon following the 14th amendment, which gave them citizenship and, and equal protection under the law. Um, whether that was really carried out at that time or not, you know, maybe in different parts probably was, was treated differently, but you you see like the, the, from that point, you know, once, once slaves, as far as the constitution and amendments are concerned, become equal, um, you start to see these prejudices really like start to develop and, and they become more and more entrenched in places, especially like the South as like people that used to be nothing to these slave owners, these plantation owners are now like in some regards, like on their level or like 
equal to them. They don't, they're not just like slave labor, whatever, throwaway people. And like you, from this, you see the KKK develop and, and you see all these, these different like things just become so the racism just become ingrained into people. And, and then like, as that evolves through the years, you get to something like, you know, the, uh, mid 20th century and, and you have, you know, blacks you know, really fully integrated working into the community able to buy houses able to do all these things where they actually are on the level of a lot of like white people at the time um but then you have people that are getting tar and feathered for going around dating white women and you know all the, they're just like still treated so differently and like you could one could argue that like still face a lot of economic disadvantages today based on slavery hundreds of years ago so Maybe yeah, it, maybe it, they so weren't it getting. Took, it took the end of. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have another point? Well, I was just saying maybe they weren't getting like beat and abused on farms, you know, every day, like like they were. But like in in a way, like they still had to maybe live in fear or or weren't really given that full scope of the American dream, even you know into the mid twentieth century, even till today. One could say, um, based on this just racism and pre- prejudice that like it's has become ingrained uh, in the people as a result. Yeah, certainly. And it took the end of slavery and they, and, and, and it said the theological myths and the, the social norms and the legislation that were passed to make slavery possible in America prevailed beyond the fact of black people being freed from slavery. So those myths allowed for the mistreatment of black people because of the, the law didn't dissipate the myths and the beliefs of the people that thought that black people were lesser and they were using them for slaves because of it. Mm-hmm. So even though you abolish slavery, you don't abolish the attitudes and again, the religious myths, which are held so very closely to these people. And so you get something like Jim Crow, where even though you're freed, you're not allowed to vote and you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that. And the thought of somebody, they, they talked about a guy who tried to enroll at the university of Mississippi and they forcefully put him into a mental institution. And the reasoning was you would have to be batshit crazy to think that you could enroll (laughs) in the university of Mississippi. So of course you need to go to some, you know what I'm saying? And those were the beliefs of these people because they felt that those beliefs and what they held to be true became about as a natural process. Mm -hmm. They also talked about um, how the ideas that black people were foul, slothful, and vicious allowed for the prevalence of those ideas to actually flourish. They said it wasn't that those things were necessarily true on the whole about black people, but it was those ideas, those myths and the legislation that backed up those myths Hmm. that reinforced those ideas onto black folks, which then more or less I don't want to say caused, but I guess you could say caused these ideas to become true in real life. 
he references beauty standards there too with that like where, right, where right. At, at, in in this time in this you know mid 20th century um and before like beauty standards became focused on what were typical white features like an upward tip nose light skin straight hair and then they would use in in different weight bunches of different medias black features like dark skin thick bushy hair flat wide nose that's deemed ugly and then mm-hmm. like these preconceptions that people see in advertising and movies and yada 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 all over the place or just from people talking they become like rooted in, in the subconscious of, of people for generations yeah and, and, you know what's and, interesting about that too is hmm. um it's it's separate but sort of related um the whitening of skin in india and yeah. in south korea is like it's like it's like getting uh, a boob job in america really that's how common it is I, I, when I wow. heard about that, I thought I, I just, it just kind of made me think, I was like, I wonder if that has any correlation or relation to anything that's happened in the United States, because I feel like Western society, it, today's Western society has influenced the culture of a lot of societies who were catching up to the West in a well, way. Yeah. I mean, I, there's even proof that like Michael Jackson did that, man. Like he, he blamed uh, yeah, it on, on yeah. vitiligo, but like my, my stepmom has had vitiligo for upwards of 30 some years and she still hasn't become fully white. She still has, has speckles all over. And Michael Jackson went through this process in the matter of like a year or two. So yeah. it's, it's like, you know, I don't know if but I've he, ever seen any facts saying that he really bleached his skin or whatever, but like he definitely did that to be more accepted by, um, a bigger part of America, I guess you could say, or a different part yeah. maybe. Or possibly, you know, it was just his insecurity and vanity that if he was going to be breaking out and being speckled with black and white skin, he'd rather just be one color. Right. Yeah, true. And maybe you can bleach your skin and you can't darken. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I just thought it was interesting. I had had learned about this uh, a couple of years ago in business school about how the market for whitening your skin in in these cultures is huge. And it's not thought of as a... It's not thought of as necessarily racist, but you are thought of as less attractive with darker skin. So are you telling single white males to go over to India and see how they do? <laughs> clean Probably clean up. up. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, um, yeah, I did say aesthetic culture in, in the United States was, was uh, built around white characteristics. Yeah. Um, and of course that's true. I mean, if you look at, if you look at any sort of modern um, American entertainment, movies, television shows, what have you, um, you know, it's pure white. And, you know, not that there's not a black presence, but it's sparse and usually in a context that is not um, as favorable, right? So I, I, that, that to me is objectively true. Yeah. That the aesthetic of America was built around, uh, built around white. Um, at least the, the white ruling caste that existed, um, you know, up until the, the early mid 20th century. Um, which is wild because like a lot of the labor (laughs) was by Asian mm -hmm. and, and black people that like actually made the country become the country we are. Right. So it talks about that in, in terms actually of women and not, and not race when, when it starts to talk about the, the subjugation of, of women. Um, and it, it sort of has, it, it talks about how back in, in the, in the days of, of being a forager, hunter, hunter, gatherer, and 
the, the women would more or less keep a man in check and would even attack a man if he stepped out of line. And it, and it kind of said, why, you know, why don't we do that today? Because if we hold a belief that women organizationally are better than men and that they, um, have these characteristics of being able to, to, I, I guess, like more or less be neater or be, uh, just more organized personally in, in almost all aspects of their life, then why shouldn't we be having women run the military? Because if we believe the characteristics of men to be true, that they're more brutish, more prone to violence, more prone to throw themselves into a dangerous situation, want to be the hero, things like that, then shouldn't we let them play their role and let women play their role? Instead, what we have is more or less a power imbalance. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it takes, it takes that, it takes that idea and it brings it full circle and it gives examples from all cultures of, of the world. We spoke on China a little bit before, but it talks about how, um, you know, you could be born on a lucky day in China and not make it. Uh, and currently, or most recently there was a one child rule. So if you had a, a girl, it wasn't the greatest thing. And while you needed women to procreate, there was too many of them and not enough men. So they had a one woman, one child rule, but it talked about how people would kill their firstborn if it was a woman in order to have the chance to have a boy, um, which is wild, man. I mean, it's just such a batshit crazy thing to us, but to them, I mean, it was practiced in the largest country in the world. So you got to imagine that they had some ties to, whatever myth that they were believing or whatever cultural uh, norm that they were being fed that said, Hey, this is for the betterment of all of us. Right. Uh, it talked about women uh, as up until very recently being seen as property and not as a sovereign human. Right. So, uh, if you were a woman who was raped in like medieval Europe, you were paid. If you, if like, if you raped someone's wife, mm -hmm. you paid the husband yeah. for the damage to his property, more or less. Or like rape someone's daughter and then right. you'd pay them and, and betroth them. So that was, that was, uh, that was in, uh, it's in the Bible and Deuteronomy that if you were to lay with a virgin, um, then you had to pay the father and then marry that woman. Um, mm -hmm. he also says that you, it was impossible to rape your wife at this time period. Yeah, right, and and yeah, that because they, if you, they compared raping your own wife to stealing your own wallet. That's how right. they thought of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, the idea of raping your own wife wasn't even an idea. It didn't exist. Oh, yeah. Like um, what? Yeah. And rape was classified usually under property law. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of like asks like, you know, shouldn't, if we really had like these beliefs that we have now, 
um, shouldn't somebody with a womb be considered like the number one person to protect and honor because they are the ones that are procreating our, you know, our existence instead throughout most of human history. And it does make the point that in the past, in the past century, these norms have been eroding at, at a, a light speed pace. And yeah. how, you know, like, like we just mentioned a hundred years ago, you know, women couldn't vote. Um, and now they're voting on, you know, boards of corporations all throughout the world and their chancellor of Germany elected officials. And, yeah. You know. Right. So, so, so these norms have been eroding very fast, but it does make the point that we have just kind of traded them as baby factories, more or less mm, for, for far all too long. of human history because of these imagined orders and because we've fed ourselves these stories that men naturally are superior because they're stronger, because they fight the wars, because they do whatever, right? Because they have the power, then naturally they're better. And if they weren't, then why would they have that power? Um, yeah. So I think that's the theme of this is that all of these myths and these ideas that we hold to be true, even the ones that are the most egregious and have caused the most harm and suffering in history come from a place of being objectively natural, objectively true. And that's something that has progressed in nature beyond the manipulation of man. And it's a terrifying uh, theory. It's a, it's a really scary um, concept and, and we still see sure. it today, you know, it's encouraging it, it, to see it, a change though. Even like the, the, these beauty, you know, standards like are, are, you know, it's all, it's, it's, it's starting to change very quickly for something that existed for 75,000 years or whatever you want to call it since we've been sapiens and, and, yeah. and like how, how men have like almost been like programmed to be like this ambitious and competitive person being and to excel like in politics and business while like you have women who are, you know, you're there to move out of the way and, and dedicate your life to raising and nurturing children. And, and it's like, that has been the way for centuries forever. And, and like in such a short time, you're really seeing that start to change. And that makes me think like, what is, what does life look like in a thousand years, even from now? Like, how, how does that really change that whole dynamic? Like, how does that change our society and culture as a whole, our race? I have a question for you. It's a little bit in the weeds here, but on the, on the topic of beauty and, and, and aesthetics, is there objective ugly? Hmm. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe more culture, like from culture to culture, you'd probably see that. Yeah. I, I, th I think I've seen a correlation between the, like the dismantling of what it means to be a beautiful person. Right. Yeah. We'll use America as, as an example, because this shit changes from culture to culture, nation to nation, whatever. But in America, the idea of what is beautiful has been, has been, at, at least we've tried to shift what it, what it means for, for as, as people looking at people, right? 
this is beautiful mm-hmm. and that is beautiful and, and we're all beautiful and beauties and everybody, right? I think there's a correlation of that idea with a reduction in objective beauty and other things. And sure. you can use, I think you can use architecture as an example. Um, Chicago has some of the most beautiful architecture that this country has to offer. We do. San Diego does not. And sure. the buildings, and even in Chicago, the new buildings that, uh, that go up are, they're generic. These steel and gra- glass structures that have no real defining features to them. They're modern and they're a little edgy. Yeah, but chic. They're, but they're basic. Right. And to me, I you know, I think that is an unfair trade-off. Mm-hmm. I think that we can loosen our ideas and celebrate the beauty in all people and also have strict standards for what is objectively beautiful and strive for more beauty. Sure. I would like cities to look way more like Chicago than they do San Diego. Yeah. You know, I'd rather have your weather though. So we could like trade, (laughs) but I I think that like, as far as like beauty and all that goes these days, I think it gets so muddied now because you have, I mean, and nothing against them. Like they've, they've built like an empire for themselves, but like the Kardashians where like, they sell this, like this image that's like so fake and like, so it's surgery, man. And makeup and just like, not real, not real attainable beauty without like spending money to become like this almost like Barbie doll fakeness. And like, I think that is like starting to muddy in people's minds, like what beauty is because it's more just like, on another tier of like what reality is with, with humans almost, you know what right, I mean? You can like manufacture you might have, it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And it like it changes. Used, it used to be that beautiful people. And I think that objectively there are beautiful people and people who are not aesthetically pleasing to the eye. Right. Like I, uh, that's a harsh thing to say, but there are people who are not good looking to the eye. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the people who are used to reveal themselves more or less naturally, right? Yeah. Because of so. their natural features. And also our ideas of beauty have changed through time, right? What it yeah. meant to be a beautiful person in 1950 is different in 1960, is different in 1980, is different in 2020. Mm-hmm. But to your point, yeah, the beauty that we see today more or less is manufactured either through an Instagram filter or through going and getting surgery on one part of your body or another. And it's weird, right? Because I think the idea, the justification of it is like, well, if you have the means to do it and you, it's going to make you feel better then yeah, go for it. Sure. But then it also upholds the unrealistic standards of beauty that are most common in, in pop culture. And I think like mentally it affects a lot of people too. Cause it's like these young girls, like I don't have that ass. I don't have, you know, like all these different things, like they compare themselves to these Instagram models and all this different thing. And it's like, I think mentally, like we're going to have a big effect of all of this stuff down the road because like they're not attainable goals, I guess, without like wealth or like without like buying into all these like different products and programs that these people do. And I think that you're going to see that have like a lot of effect on, on young, on the youth, um, growing up as they, they look up to these people and, and idolize these people and that yeah, image. For sure. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm all for, you know, 
uh, highlighting what is what is objectively beautiful. And I think that we can find um, objective beauty in a whole lot of things. And, and most of it is going to be either natural or by the, by the hands of painstakingly hard work, such as like St. Patrick's cathedral or whatever it is that is in Chicago that you can look at is, you know, this grand example of, you know, superb American architecture that didn't come about by looking at, uh, a strict budget, right? It came about how can we make this a grand, beautiful work of art and then, you know, roll up your sleeves and do it. Um, right. Yeah. And, and I don't know, it's tough cause you can't shame somebody for wanting to go and get no yeah, they not have at the all. freedom to do that. For right? sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, but it is, I mean, there's a detriment to it for sure. And, and the unrealistic, ideas of beauty and the idea that you need to manipulate your body to get it. That is certainly damaging. Yeah. I think social media is like the catalyst of all that. Certainly. Yeah, certainly. So, um, you know, you let your kids have an Instagram. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't want to control them, man. I want, I want them to be, to be, to experience life and like all your fuck ups and the ups and downs and, and, and all these different things. I, I don't want to like hide them from the world because then I feel like when you get to a, like, even if you make them wait till they're 18 or 16 or whatever, like once that happens, they're going to be like, Whoa, like this is shocking to me. Like this is, this is not the world as I thought it was so kind of like I've described before to you, like, uh, with my upbringing and like how, like under the just like going to a Catholic private school my whole life. And maybe it was just like where I was raised, uh, you know, or who I was raised by or anything. But I feel like I was told like a very, um, one-sided version of what the world is or should be. And then like, once you get to college or whatever else, you see that like, there's so much more to the world, so many different people. So like so many things like you just didn't know about. Um, and I'm not blaming that like on the church or anything. I'm just, that was like the environment that I was in. Um, and I, I think, I think then it can cause you maybe to go crazy, go overboard with partying or doing, you know, this or that. Like they always say like Catholic school girls are the craziest because like sex is such this taboo thing. And like, so like, it's like this wanted thing and like that can lead to a lot of bad shit down the road. So I feel like being honest, my personal perspective on parenting, whenever I get to do that w- would be, um, just to try to like, you always say, be honest, to be truthful and, and, and just like try to teach them about what the reality of the world and as you see it, I guess, cause you're the one parenting them, um, is, and then, you know, just, just see how that unfolds for them. But I don't, I don't think like trying to hide any aspect of the world necessarily would be in my opinion, like the best thing to do. What about you? Mm. I, I tend to think that I, I would not allow them to, join up on any social media while they're in their most impressionable years. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I yeah. just, I just see, I just see the detriments of it being far more than they're being pissed off that they can't join in the social network of their friends. And, uh, let's argue about it for the next hour then you want yeah. to, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have kids, so I can't really speak on it. And if you're yeah, on Instagram, more power to you. I hope they're, I hope that they, um, are using it as a, 
as a vehicle for friendship uh, because <laughs> that would certainly be a nice change of pace. But anyway, this and, uh, will conclude our review here on uh, Sapiens, chapters seven and eight. Or excuse me, six and seven. Um, no. Seven and eight. Seven and eight. (laughs) I apologize. Uh, And that also concludes part two, the agricultural revolution. Next time we speak with you guys, we will start part three, the unification of humankind, starting with chapter nine, the era of history, and chapter 10, the scent of money. Until then. Bye-bye.